All right, if you've got a Coffee House Bible, they're over here if you need one. We're going to be on page 845. That's Matthew chapter 19. We are in a series called Jesus and Sex. And if you're visiting, this is your first time, you're like, what did I just get into? Uh, take heart, this is the last week of it. I, I want to offer a few words of, of appreciation. One, I'm really appreciative for the teachers who are downstairs. I, I wouldn't be surprised if the kids came up learning after this month, Psalm 13, which is like, how long, O oh Lord, how long? Will you hide your face from me forever? Because there have been some really long lessons in this series. And that's on purpose, sort of. I don't love preaching a really long time, but I also don't love giving simplistic answers to complex questions. I think that it can be really disorienting when you do that. And so I've taken my time, and so I appreciate their servant hearts and your graciousness with all of that. Um, but mostly I'm appreciative for those who've taken a step already. Some of you have taken a step and you've made commitments. You're in dating relationships and you're committing that we will not have sex until we are married. You're taking a step for your, your unwanted sexual behavior. You're like, I need to get the help that is offered right now. Maybe the Lord is calling you into the, this morning. Take a step. There, there are real steps to be taken when it comes to living out the ethics of Jesus and sex. Let me summarize what we've talked about so far. In part one, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Jesus and sexual desire and really, all of the sermons are coming from the Gospel of Matthew. This one was Matthew 5 on the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, he said, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And we said, honestly, most of us haven't heard it said very often. We didn't hear it said very often at home. And we didn't hear it said very often at church. And so we're left to just like pick up the pieces from what culture is teaching us about sex. And Jesus is saying something very different than our culture on sex. Jesus was saying something very different in his Jewish culture on sex. He says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. He says, you've heard it said you shouldn't commit adultery. He says, I tell you, you shouldn't look at a woman in order to lust after her. He says, if you did that, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Jesus intensifies and he internalizes the nature of sexual desire. He says it can define you, yes, but it can also defile you. So Matthew 5 was our first kind of springboard, and we looked at this, this chart here. If this is your first time, maybe take a picture, maybe just ignore it. It doesn't matter to me. But we said there are four cultural stories that are there today that Jesus needs to respond to in some way. The first story is a platonic story that sex is somehow bad or dirty or fleshly. The, the second story is that sex is just casual. It's just an appetite. It's just for fun. If you're hungry, eat. If you're thirsty, drink. If you're sexually aroused, just go have some fun. It's... it's it's just a convenient interaction between people who are basically animals. We said the third story, it's a story that's um, like a traditional culture where family is what's most important about sex. Sex is what gives us children, so I need a wife in order to have sons, in order to pass on the legacy. Now, there are echoes of all three of those, but the dominant voice that we hear today, the story that we hear culturally about sex is the romantic story of sex. The romantic story of sex says that sex is where you find your true fulfillment. It's where you find your soulmate. It's, it's where you find true love. So today, I'm really going to be pushing back on the two versions on the right side of the screen, the traditional view and the romantic view, as we talk about the next part in our series. At the center of this, the thing that holds it together, all of the desires 
are held together here in some way, but not in their extreme form. So there's a restraining, but yet a releasing that happens in what I call the covenant view of sex, that sex belongs only in a covenant. This was all part one. In part two, we looked at Matthew 19. Matthew 19 is Jesus' most extensive teaching on sex and marriage. And in three verses, Jesus gives a four-part definition of what marriage is all about. He says, first, that it's between a male and a female. There's sexual complementarity. He says, second, it's, it's about a relational priority. You should leave your father and mother and be joined to your wife. Third, he says, there's a covenantal intimacy that they are joined by God and the two become one flesh. And then fourth, he says, there's a lifelong permanency. What God has joined together, let no one separate. If you have a couple of hours <laughs> this week, you can listen to those two sermons. <laughs> uh, but that brings us to part three, because the response of the disciples to those verses of Jesus' teaching is this. Whenever they hear Jesus' definition of marriage, they say, if this is the situation between a man and a wife, between a husband and a wife, then it is better not to marry. When people heard Jesus talk about marriage, when he talked about sex, they left thinking, maybe this isn't for me. So I think it's totally appropriate to look at the text of Jesus, and we'll pick it up right here today in Matthew 19.10. We'll look at the next few verses, and then we'll, we'll pop over to a few other of our final marriage texts in the Gospel of Matthew. And we'll look at this, this question of singleness. This is part three, Jesus and sex on singleness. All right, we've got some singles in the room. Did you know a majority of our church is single? Um, many, and when I say single, I don't mean you're not dating. I just mean unmarried. And this isn't surprising. In, in our country, singleness is at its all-time peak historically. People are getting married later, and they're just putting off marriage altogether. It's, it's actually the highest version and the latest version of marriage that we've, we've ever seen in human history as best we can tell. There's a lot of reasons for why people are single. Some of them are really personal. Some of you have had your hearts broken, and that's why. That's what it feels like. It's like something didn't go according to plan. Some of you just aren't interested. Some of you, it's been death or, or some other devastation. Some of you, you're focusing on your career. Some of you are just really young. There's a lot of reasons that people are single. Everyone has their personal ones. There are also cultural reasons why singleness rates are at an all-time high. In our culture, we're a very individualistic culture, and so we really want freedom. And singleness gives you the most freedom. Young adult singlehood is the most free you will ever be. It's, it's the unique combination of like autonomy and responsibility, and it's, it's freedom. So it, it makes total sense. But in our culture at large, there's also been this distancing of sex that's happened for marriage. And so if you don't need to be married in order to have sex, why would you get married when you can have all the sex you want outside of marriage? In Memphis, we have really high unmarried rates in our city, and this is connected to mass incarceration and legislation that favors singleness for those in poverty. With the rise of technologies more broadly in our culture, we see things like social media, we see the technology of video games, and what researchers say is that even the social skills of people in their 20s just aren't what they used to be because of some of these things. We don't have the face-to-face -face interaction that we used to. The average young adult man spends 10,000, by the time he's 21, spends 10,000 hours playing video games. 
that's enough for like a college degree and a master's degree. But it's, it's getting a college and a master's degree in a non-human interaction. So it doesn't play out well in terms of real relationships. Plus, when you factor in porn and hookups, which can be maybe more sexually gratifying and less relationally demanding, there's a lot of reasons why singleness is on the rise in our culture. But even as singleness is on the rise in our culture, single anxiety is as well. Last week I shared that there's a, based on University of Chicago, just this month, they published new research that said that there's a 30-point gap in happiness and unhappiness between married people and single people, unmarried people. One of the researchers who was part of that team, Sam Peltzman, he says low happiness characterizes all types of non-married. He says if you look at the unmarried, never married, the divorced, the widowed, he says they're all just significantly less happy than married people. No subsequent population categorization will yield so large a difference in happiness across so many people. He says this is the most important factor for determining if someone's happy or not. The recent decline in the married share of adults can explain statistically most of the recent decline in happiness overall. He says the reason our culture is getting less and less happy is because it has less and less marriage. Now, Jesus has a radically different vision of singleness and happiness than the one that's currently on offer in our culture. So I think what we have to do is pull out some of those stories of sex, marriage, and singleness, and then try to speak the story of Jesus into them. But when I listen to and learn from singles, I'm reminded just how anxious many of you feel. Maybe for reasons that don't have anything to do with the cultural ones or the personal ones that I name, but I, I hear a lot of anxieties when I listen to single people. Some are experiencing loneliness. I'm just by myself all the time. Some are experiencing rejection. It took me years to recover from my last relationship. Some feel pressure. I don't even know if I want to get married, but I want to get married and I feel like I'm running out of time. I feel like a ticking time bomb, someone said to me. What if I marry the wrong person? What if I don't marry? Can I still do the kids thing on my own? Then there are these feelings of expectations that this isn't just this isn't what I had planned for my life. There's confusion. How am I supposed to find a spouse? Should I use dating apps? What do I do here? There's doubt. Should I stay in this relationship even though it's bad? Can I actually do better than this? How do I know when it's time to be truly vulnerable? What if they leave? What will they think of my lack of sexual experience? What will they think of all of my sexual baggage? Some of you are feeling regret. Did I miss my chance? You see, there's so many different forms that anxiety can show up in a single person. It can be hard to live out faith, though, in particular, as a single person. There's this question of holiness. How do I handle my urges for sex, given that I'm currently single? Contentment. How do I handle my longings for marriage? Or my absence of longings for marriage? Is that okay? Should I pray for a spouse? Should I seek a spouse? What if I'm okay without one? Or and when it comes to community and friendships, how do I choose a church? Are there enough single people at this church for me to go to it? Are there enough single people at this church and the other one that I go to looking for singles for me to go to it too? <laughs> it's like a, there's so many pressures. And I probably haven't even voiced all of yours, I know. It's tough to be single, and it's tough to be single in church. I was listening to a pastor at a church that had 6,000 singles. 
and he was describing how difficult it was. He said, when you have that many singles, especially young ones, there's a lot of college campuses at this church. He says, everyone is performing. It's like, you, you, it's like, do I hold my hands like this or like this? How spiritual do I want to look? It's just you're in your head all the time because there's all these thousands of options who are looking at you've got to perform while you're there. You've got to project the right kind of person in order to be there. But most of you don't <laughs> go to a church with 6,000 single people. You go to a, a church with more like 60 people. I was, I was thinking of some of the stories I've heard from singles where like the little old lady at the wedding is like, don't worry, you'll be next. <laughs> like, don't you just want to say to her at the funeral you go to, don't worry, you'll be next. <laughs> it's like, come on. It, it, you go from performing to pressure. Where it's just like, I, I'm not complete yet. There's something still for me to do. Am I, am I human? Can, I, can you just embrace me? And all of these kind of desires and longings and questions are sometimes just swirling around. It's hard to even parse them out. And at a church, it can feel like everything is aimed at married people. Um, Christina Cleveland, she says, based on her just kind of anecdotal research on Amazon, there seems to be 298 marriage books to everyone on singleness. And yet half of America is single. It's like, what is going on here? At Oikos, a majority of our church is unmarried. And in our city, a vast majority of our city is unmarried. And Jesus himself was unmarried. And so it makes total sense to me that we need to spend some time just reflecting on Jesus' vision for singleness and, and the kingdom. So that's what we're going to do today is close out our series on Jesus and sex with the kingdom vision for singleness. And if you're single today, if you're unmarried at all, I really want to invite you to, to begin reflecting on what God's vision for your singleness might look like. What does God want to do with the, with the reality, with the, the gift of your singleness? I think the truth is that when you're aimless and single, it can feel really frustrating. You can experience a lot of discontent. When you're aimless and single, it can be very frustrating. But when you have a vision from God for the kingdom, when you have a vision and you're single, your singleness can be really empowering. It can be really purposeful. So let's, let's dive in. If you're single, I want you to kind of have that in the back of your mind. We're going to go to this text in Matthew 19. Jesus has just been talking about marriage. But then the disciples say, if this is the situation, then it's better not to marry. What do you think? Is it better? Is it better not to marry? Jesus responds like this in verse 11. He replied, not everyone, it's not better for everyone, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. He uses this language of gift. This is a gift giver. He's giving some people the, the gift of singleness. It's like the fruitcake at Christmas. It's like, I don't want it. <laughs> it's like, for, he says, there are eunuchs who were born that way. You know what a eunuch is? Here's one dictionary's definition of eunuch, an indeterminate sexual characteristic. Indeterminate sexual characteristic. It's basically someone who has their genitals mutilated, either by birth, in this case, they were born that way, or by trauma. He says, there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. In the ancient world, whenever you'd conquer a people, many of them would be, um, I don't know a delicate way to say that, um, castrated? 
Um, okay, so there have been eunuchs who were made that way, but Jesus says there are those who choose to live like eunuchs. Notice he's not recommending castration for anyone, but there are some who choose to live like eunuchs. Do you see how he's using eunuch as a metaphor for singleness? Man, Jesus, that's kind of a tough word on singleness. Is it really better? Is it really better? He says, those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, those who can accept this should accept it. He says, there's three criteria to figure out if you're somebody who has been given this gift or if you should accept this. He says, first, you need to ask about your birth, about your genetics, about your kind of biological makeup. Second, you need to ask about your trauma, your experiences, your environment and family history. Was I born this way? Was I made this way? And he says, third, you need to ask about your choices. Is this the best way for me to live for the kingdom of God? That's Jesus' criteria for singleness. But what I want to do is kind of expand out what he says here into a larger theology of singleness. We're going to pull in some of what he says here, along with some other passages, especially 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you're a single person and you haven't read 1 Corinthians 7 in a while, I commend it to you. Paul is writing almost an entire chapter on singleness. And so today we're going to look quickly at a theology of singleness, and then I want to speak to our church, speak to those people thinking about dating, speak to people thinking about marriage, and then we'll, we'll close it up. All right, the first piece that we see in Jesus' theology of singleness is that singleness is a blessing. Now, this may seem like an empty word, given that we have, like, hashtag blessed. That's, that's not what I mean. I mean the covenant blessing of God. In the Old Testament, it seems to be wrapped up in marriage, in childbearing. After all, Genesis chapter 1, what does it mean to be human? It means to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. There's a procreation element. And so in Israel's scriptures, we see people who were blessed, just blessed people. What does a blessed person look like in the Old Testament? It looks like Abraham. Abraham, he's, he's married and he has children and he he's, has wealth and he has land. This is the promise of blessing in Genesis 12. It looks like Psalm 128, where a man has a wife and he has children, including sons, and he can pass on his heritage to his grandchildren. The blessing all throughout the scripture looks and sounds like a traditional story of sex. That is not Jesus' story. Jesus tells a very different story. And Jesus says, singleness is the blessing. It's an extremely countercultural view, given that he's talking to a bunch of traditional-minded people, and he says, no, your family is not who gets to say who you are. They do not define you. Matthew chapter 12, his mom and his brothers, they show up to a place where he's at, and they say, hey, your mom and your siblings are outside, and he, sa- he looks around at his disciples. He points to them, it says, and he says, these are my brothers and my sisters and my mother and my father, the ones who do the will of my father. He redefines family, not on like a physical lineage, not on a blood connection, not on a flesh line, not even on a marriage. Jesus defines family based on discipleship with him at the center. What about marriage? Is marriage the center of it? In Matthew 22, Jesus is asked this question by Sadducees. They say, hey, in the resurrection, there's this woman who's been married to seven different men. It's an absurd kind of scenario, but it's actually based on a really popular Jewish book called Tobit. 
Um, in Tobit chapter 3, it's actually in the Catholic Apocrypha, there's this woman who gets married, and before she's able to conceive a son on her wedding night, a demon, Asmodeus, kills her husband. She gets married again, before, same deal, gets married again, gets married again, seven times, and so that she develops this kind of reputation in the community as a woman who's cursed by God, who will never have children. And so the Sadducees pick up the story, and they say, whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? Jesus knows that they're really asking the question about resurrection, not about marriage, but this is what he says. He says, in the resurrection, he says, you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. In the resurrection, they will be like the angels, neither married nor given in marriage. He says marriage is temporary. You want an eternal blessing, go somewhere else. He redefines it. It's not family. It's not marriage. Instead, Jesus goes to the eunuch. And he says the eunuch is the one who gets the blessing. Where does Jesus get this idea that eunuch is the one who's better? And if you can get this gift, you should take hold of it. He gets it from the prophet Isaiah. Let me show you Isaiah 56. This is what Kari read for us today. It's in this prophecy about when the kingdom of God comes. He says, let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord, bound is the language of covenant. Let none of them say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. He says, don't imagine it, that he's going to cut you off. Let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. That's what a eunuch would feel like. If all of the blessing was about having a family line and the eunuch was unable to have children, do you see what this would say to him? I, I, I'm nothing. I can't do it. But the prophet says, don't complain, I'm only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. He's using covenant faithfulness language to talk about eunuchs. He says, to them, I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial. Within my temple. Now, the book of Deuteronomy actually said, eunuchs, you're not welcome in the temple. You're not allowed in to go worship God. You have this mark of uncleanness, a mark of death. We only need clean things and holy things in the holy temple. You can't be here. But Isaiah says there's coming a day when you get to be in God's house. You will be welcome to the table, welcome to his presence. Not only in this house, you will get his name, a name that is better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure. You see, he totally rejects traditional identity markers. And he says, I've got a new identity marker for you. This identity is received, not achieved. This is inherited from your father in heaven, not your earthly father. And it's not one that you pass on in your legacy and lineage. Jesus himself does not have a wife and children. And yet, we're all part of his name and his family and his house. It's, it's this radical reorientation in the language of one scholar, a radical reorientation of the value of personhood. You see, of all the Abrahamic religions, only Christianity says you are whole as a single person. The New Encyclopedia of Judaism opens like this. Marriage is a commandment in the Jewish tradition and celibacy is deplored. Muhammad in the Quran not to get married is to overstep the law. In Mormonism, your full salvation in Mormonism requires marriage, but not so with Christ Jesus our Lord. He is single, and he says single people are whole people. He says you get the full identity markers. There is no improvement on the identity that he gives. Singleness is a blessing, 
It is part of the blessing. So, theology of singleness, first piece, is that singleness is truly a blessing. It is better in many ways. What ways? Second piece is that singleness is an opportunity. Singleness is an opportunity. You see, Jesus pushes back on the traditional identity. He redefines family. He redefines marriage, and he puts it on the eunuch. But now we see that Jesus pushes back on the modern identity. If he's pushing back on the traditional story of sex, that you have to have sons or children, now he's pushing back on the romantic view of sex, which is that you just have to have sex to be a full person. He calls this the gift, whoever it's given to. It's a gift, not a command. This isn't something you have to do. It's optional. It's an opportunity. John Wesley, he says that Paul is exactly agreeable with Jesus. And he points to these texts in 1 Corinthians 7. This is Paul writing to a first century church. He says, I wish that all of you were as I am. But each of you has your own, you see this language of gift. You have your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and to the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. He says, I wish you would not seek a spouse. Don't seek a husband. Don't seek a wife. I wish you would just stay single. Why? If you keep reading in chapter 7, a few verses later, he says, I would like to, for you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord, but a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests, you see this word, are divided. His interests are divided. A few verses later, he says the same thing about women seeking husbands, and then he says this, I'm saying this for your own good. Not to restrict you, you can, you can be married, you can seek marriage, but that you may live in a right way in an undivided devotion to the Lord. He says, there's this amazing opportunity here. Now, there's a yes and there's a no to singleness and to marriage. But I just want to remind singles that marriage is a no to many things. Marriage has many no's. There is the one yes, right? You get to have sex with your spouse. If, that one's a big one. Paul says, if you're burning with passion, it's better to marry. But there's so many other no's that come with it. And this isn't just talking about video games and hobbies, right? There's so many no's that come with parenting. They come with marriage. Parenting is a no to sleeping through the night for many years. Parenting is a no to not having someone else's poop on you. It's a no to privacy. More seriously, it's a no to a myriad of friendships. It's a no to what in Christian history has been the deepest forms of discipleship. Whenever I think of, I mean, just, just imagine, basically everyone whose first name is Saint was single. <laughs> Some of my favorite, even 20th century leaders, you know, I can open up my books by Henry Nouwen. He was a, a celibate, single man all his life. One of my favorite kind of ministry heroes is a guy named John Stott, single all his life. C.S. Lewis, everything you know C.S. Lewis for, he wrote while he was single. He didn't marry until his late 50s. And then he married, and then his wife quickly died. There's, there's just so many great men and women of Christian history who've been single because they get to, to focus. One of, these, one of these men was, was John Wesley. He wrote this, Thoughts on a Single Life. 
And he says, there's this amazing opportunity that comes with singleness because you can do ministry without distraction. Here's how we put it. You're free from a thousand nameless domestic trials which are found sooner or later in every family. You are exempt from numberless occasions of sorrow and anxiety with which heads of families are entangled, especially those who have sickly or weak or unhappy or disobedient children. Guys, I can't tell you how much energy I put in to figuring out this disobedient children thing. <laughs> Seriously. Um, I don't know if you all know this. Kelsey and I are homeschooling our kids this year. It's because we have we've signed on for this parenting thing and we're, I feel called and convicted to, to kind of give them my all. But I wouldn't be doing that, right? If I, my energy could go in a totally different place. So you can do ministry without the, what he calls the domestic trials and the, the distractions. But he says also you can do love without idolatry. He says the greatest of all entanglements is the loving of one creature above all others. He says, you can possibly be married without sin, but how inconceivably difficult to give God our whole heart while a creature has so large a share of it. You see, there's this idolatry of marriage that is just so common that we don't even see it as idolatry. And then I step out and I think, man, there is no greater temptation on my love for God than my love for Kelsey. She's She's special to me. She's really important to me. And it is possible that I could live my life in a way where I was more interested in loving her than loving my Heavenly Father. You see, this is not the romantic view of sex and marriage that Jesus is asking us to. John Wesley, for the record, was single most of his life. He had one year-long courtship that ended with her marrying another man. And then he had another failed courtship, and then finally he got married to a widow when he was about 46 years old. And in just a few months, they basically hated each other. She was so jealous of all the time that he gave to ministry. He would just ride on horseback doing meetings and riding all the time. He, didn't, he was a terrible husband. He, he, he tried to live as if he was single, even though he was married, and she hated him for it, and so she left. She left over and over, and eventually she just left for good. He says, I did not leave her. I did not send her away. I will not call her back. I'm not, that's not like a suggestion, by the way. That's not how you should write love notes to your spouse. Singleness is an opportunity in, in many ways. It's a yes that's totally different than the yes of marriage. And it's a no that's totally different than the no of marriage. But it's an opportunity that has some unique opportunities built into it. Third, Singleness is a calling. Singleness is a calling. If it's a gift, most people say, I don't really want it. But Jesus says, <laughs> whether you like it or not, here you are. But while you're there, it's a calling into something. Now, for some people, you will be there your entire life. And Jesus says, this may be better. Paul says, this may be better. But it's not just a calling away from something. It's actually calling into something. Wesley Hill is an outstanding writer. He's a, a gay Christian and a priest who's taken a vow of celibacy. Um, and he says that a calling is not just saying no to something. It's always saying yes to something. In his language, which is a little more complicated, he says, out of a negative renunciation comes a positive vocation. He, he's looking at G.K. Chesterton. G.K. Chesterton wrote this little kind of parable about drawing with chalk on brown paper bags. 
Do you ever have those white Crayola crayons? I just thought they were totally pointless. Because I, like, I was always writing on like computer paper, right? It never shows up. But he says, when you get to write on, on a brown paper bag with chalk, it pops. You see, whiteness, this is not a commentary on ethnicity, although it probably applies. Whiteness is not the absence of color. It's the presence of something. Here's, here's how Chesterton says it. He says, virtue is not the absence of vices. It's not the avoidance of moral dangers. Virtue is a vivid and separate thing. Chastity doesn't mean abstention from sexual wrong. It means something flaming, like Joan of Arc. It means something flaming, like Joan of Arc. He says, as long as you think that you're calling as a single person or as a gay person, he says, as long as you think it's just a calling to know, he says, that's a surefire way to bitterness, a shriveling of soul. Singleness and chastity, of celibacy, of, of sexual holiness, is a calling to Christ. Out of a renunciation comes a positive vocation. Paul says it like this, whatever were gains to me, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Elizabeth Elliot, she says this, having now spent more than 41 years being single, I've learned that it is indeed a gift. Not one I would choose, not one many women or men would choose. But we do not choose gifts, remember. We are given them by a divine giver who knows the end from the beginning and wants above all else to give us the gift of himself. One more quote on this note. Singleness is a calling to the kingdom in the language of Jesus. He says, some will choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. Get a vision for what God wants for your life. And if you do, and it's inclusive of singleness, it will always be a prioritizing of the church. This is Stanley Howard Wass. He says, there can be no more radical act than singleness as it is the clearest institutional expression that one's future is not guaranteed by the family, but by the church. The church, that harbinger of the kingdom of God, is now the source of our primary loyalty. He says, get a vision for what God wants to do in the kingdom, and you get to make it your life's focus. So, what would it look like to live for the kingdom? What would it look like to, to practice this as a church? I want to speak to just three groups. First, I want to talk to the church as we consider singles. Then I want to talk to people considering dating. And then I want to talk to people considering marriage. And we're going to go fairly rapid fire here. Otherwise, it'll be a repeat of last week's 112 or an hour and 12 minute long sermon. So I don't want to do that. All right. Singleness is a blessing. It's an opportunity and it's a calling. So what would it look like for a church to consider singles? Basically, this is my conviction, is that Love is a human need, not a marital need. Love is a human need, not a marital need. And so I'm just taking Gary Chapman's book, The Five Love Languages, and I'm saying that's what it would look like for a church to love single people really well. Here, here's the five love languages, you know, words of affirmation. I, th I think 
it looks like Christian people in church, and I'm especially thinking of group leaders and how we create environments in our homes for singles to be fully a part of, it looks like affirmation. It's just where you see someone and you say, I'm so glad to be with you. And they know it. They believe it. That, just that affirmation of like, it is good to be with you. Words of affirmation is a key way to show singles love. Love is a human need, not just a marital need. So second, hospitality. Um, if you've got a table, invite some people to it. If you don't have a table, use one of them at the restaurant. They've got a lot. Open your table. Practice hospitality. Let, let singles be a, a part of your family rhythms and routines. And if they feel really uncomfortable about being with your family all the time, some might, invite two or three. It's an outstanding way to just demonstrate hospitality. We love having our group and all of, its, all, all of our single people in it, but I'm not picking favorites. I'm really not. That's not where this is going. But when Michael Van Heis is just walking down the street and he walks into my house and joins us for dinner, I love it. It's like that's, that's what it looks like to have a, re- a relationship. So, Michael, you're, you're still welcome anytime. Third, if it looks like service, it also looks like gifts um, and celebration. I think celebration is one of the, the key ways that we need, we need to show this as a church. I mean, just imagine this. If you get married, what do you do? You have a baby or you have a wedding shower. If you have a baby, what do you do? You have a baby shower. It's like all of these celebrations for married people and parents. We need to bring back some celebrations for single people. What this looks like in our group is ridiculous. Um, he's a jolly good fellow whenever you're going off to Europe, Hayden. One of my favorite group nights was singing He's a Jolly Good Fellow with birthday cake. We, just, we need celebrations for graduations, for the milestones of a single life, not only in youth, but also for the, for the widow's celebrations, for the divorced person's celebrations. Can your group be an environment of celebration and gift giving? Um, one... Christina Cleveland, she says, I mean, single, single people love um, KitchenAid mixers too. She's like, all right, number four, affection. Did you know that one of the most common commands that's given to the church for how to behave is to greet one another with a holy kiss? Five times in the New Testament, bring back the holy kiss. No, that's not going to catch on. But appropriate ways of showing physical affection are, are just, they're Christian. They're biblical. Those are good ideas. I don't, I'm not even going to comment on what might be happening. In the second century, Justin Martyr, he, he shows that the holy kiss is already a part of the liturgy. At the conclusion of the prayers, we greet one another with a kiss. John Chrysostom, in, in the early centuries of the church, he says, when we show this kind of physical affection, it equalizes everyone, banishing grievances and jealousy. He says, this is how we make, make up with each other. Now, they would, they would have pretty strict guardrails here. Men weren't just kissing women, and women weren't kissing men. By the way, I'm really not advocating for holy kisses. I just mean demonstrations of physical affection that are totally physically appropriate and wholesome. Uh, one of my friends... Um, at the church I, I used to be a minister at, was a single guy, and at some point he shared with me that he rarely got physical affection. He would just go through days without being touched. And so I, I committed. I was like, whenever I see you, I'm going to give you a really long hug. And I would just hold him, and I would squeeze him, and you could feel his body change. 
I think appropriate physical affection, you don't want to just like sneak up on somebody and do that. <laughs> Maybe talk through it first. Appropriate, all right, all right. Number five, last one, it's just attention. It's quality time. It, it looks like true friendship. It looks like true community. It looks like prioritizing time together. I'm convinced that quality time always grows out of quantity time. Quality time always grows out of quantity time. You just have to be together. So make space and do this. All right, church, can we do this? Group leaders, can we, can we, do you have any ideas for how you could start doing this a little better with the singles in your group? All right, let me talk to those thinking about dating. Now, I know not every single person is dating. Not every single person wants to date. So let me just couch all of these with an if you date, an if you date. These are five wise teachings straight out of scripture. Number one, if you date, date only when you're ready. In the Song of Songs, which is a book all about marital and sexual love, three times this, this is the rhythm that's repeated. It's like the recurring phrase throughout the book. I charge you, daughters of Jerusalem, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Attachment is an incredibly powerful force. And it should not be pursued in times of immaturity. You will get in over your head. Relational intimacy, sexual intimacy can be powerful and destructive if you get to them too soon. So if you're not ready to marry, then your dating has to look differently. J.D. Greer, he says, whenever he talks to high schoolers who are dating, thinking of Jillian, Josie, he says, your relationship should be non-exclusive, non-physical, and non-escalating. You're just, you're just not ready for that, that level of attachment that comes naturally. Do not arouse or awaken love until it's so desired. If you're not ready to be married, your dating has to look differently. Number two, if you date, date only Christians. If you date, date only Christians. Paul says it's good to not get married, but he says you're not sinning if you do go get married. She's free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. He must belong. And you think, well, that's really restrictive. Yes, the, the scriptures are actually really restrictive on who you marry. They're, they're not against cross-racial marriages. They're not against cross-ethnic marriages. They are against cross-faith marriages. Because the, just consistently, the voice of scripture says that sexual love can change your faith radically. But I think there's also some practical reasons why you should just date in the Lord, why you should only marry a Christian. By the way, I don't mean you should only marry somebody within your specific congregation or your specific denomination. I just, remember, I just mean somebody whose identity is securely in Christ. And the reason is because it's not fair to the other person who's not a Christian for you to date them. Because you and all your family are going to be praying that they change their fundamental allegiance. It's just acceptance has to be part of your relationship. And you can't have everyone in your community praying for them to change. That's not fair to them. But it's also not fair to you to go into a relationship having a fundamental difference of loyalty and allegiance with Jesus at the center. I don't think it's fair to you, and it's in a future sense, it's not fair to your future children either. It, it raises them in an environment where the love of God and discipleship to Jesus just isn't a priority. And so what Scripture seems to be saying consistently is don't be yoked together with unbelievers, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And in the first century, 
they found these, these documents that say this in, in the Jewish world at Masada. You are now free to marry any Jewish man you wish. David Inson Brewer, he's a marriage scholar. He says, instead of adding only a Jew, he adds only a Christian. They must, he's looking at this text. They must marry someone who belongs to Christ. He says, this is just what that means in that culture. So, if you date, date only Christians because you marry who you date. All right, number three. If you date, date for character, not chemistry. This is Proverbs 31 about the virtuous woman. Charm is deceptive. Beauty is fading. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Charm is deceptive. Beauty is fading. Physical appearance fades. Is appearance nothing? No, that's not what I'm saying. But it's not everything. Character is from a Greek word that just means like a, a stamp. It's when you engrave something, it's, it's just the template. A, a character is something, it's the same thing every time. And so the way to look for character rather than chemistry is to not only look how he or she acts on a date, but it's to look at how they act with their parents or with their siblings or when they're at church. If they're aggressive sexually with you, that is a character mark that means they will likely be aggressive sexually not with you. If they're promiscuous, if they're respectful, for better or worse, character is the engraving or stamping tool that shows a consistent imprint. Look for character. How can you tell character? I think this is really challenging today given how dating happens. Think of courtship in the history of humanity. I was reading just a devastatingly awful article from Vanity Fair on Tinder and the dawn of the dating apocalypse. If you want a wake-up call for dating today, this, this article is it. But in the article, it says this. We are in uncharted territory when it comes to Tinder and others, says Justin Garcia, a research scientist at Indiana's Kinsey Institute for Research in Sex, Gender, and Reproduction. There have been two major transitions and heterosexual mating in the last four million years. The first was around 10 to 15,000 years ago in the agricultural revolution when we became less migratory and more settled, leading to the establishment of marriage as a cultural contract. And the second major transition is with the rise of the internet. This is obviously a secular person looking at mating habits of heterosexual people and he says, there's been two shifts in four million years. One was marriage and two was the internet. If you find internet dating disorienting, it's because this is the only interruption into, it's the only innovation. Think of courtship in the history of humanity. A man would approach an entire family and his own community, and then he would be evaluated based on his suitability, his character, his honor, his family. And the average person at that point would have access to, I've, I've read about 14 kind of options within the community. The average person would know 14 eligible single people that you could partner with for life. And, but today, instead of a man approaching a family, a man removes a woman from her family. Instead of pursuing friendship together, a partnership, it's pursuing romance. And instead of doing it in the context of a community, it's out on the town experiences, not real life. And instead of 14 people, there's thousands of prospects. Let me just illustrate. It, it's a bit like going to the movie theater 
Paradiso and saying, which movie do I want to see? There's 14 options. You're going to be able to find an option in very quickly, just a few minutes. And then you turn on Netflix and there's 3,600 movie options. He's like, well, I don't know. I don't want to see that one. I don't want to see that one. I don't want to see that. It's really hard to evaluate based on something when it feels like there's an innumerable number of options to, to cipher through. So I think there's a strong reason for caution when it comes to dating with technology. Caution, at least. And the question is, what do you want the end of the relationship to be? Do you want the end of the relationship to be like fireworks or sparks and sizzle and explosions? But at the end of every fireworks show, it's darkness. Or do you want the end of the story, the end of the relationship to be something that I got to see when I went to Suzette's mother's funeral? Is that the reason I was thinking of this text is because at the front of the auditorium, or at the back of the auditorium, there was a Bible open to Proverbs 31. And Wilma is her name. Um, Proverbs 31, just right before this, it says, her children rise up and call her blessed. And that was what happened that day. Somebody rose up, her children and son-in-law, and they blessed her name for all that she had done for them. If you're looking for a lifelong covenant, you have to look in a different way. You have to evaluate people on a different basis. Not on the basis of just appearance or on compatibility, but on covenant partnership. I wanted a spirit-filled partner, not just for passion, whatever that is, but really for the passions that the Lord gave us in our life. Kelsey and I have a lot of work to do for the Lord here. Not least our children, but we have far more past that too. And I wanted a partner for that. Now, whatever the Lord has called you into may not need a partner in the same way. That's totally true. But there are some things that Kelsey brings out in our partnership that make it such a blessing. And if I'm, I'm just totally convinced that if I went about dating like the world did, I wouldn't have found someone like the Lord wanted me to find. Number four, date in sexual holiness. If you date, date in sexual holiness. The text is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where he says, flee sexual immorality. Now, every relationship, every dating relationship has stages where you go from connecting with somebody to considering them, and then you confirm it in, in months, and then you have some commitment and engagement, and then finally it ends in covenanting. And I, I just think that every stage needs its own deliberately chosen boundaries. Connecting, considering, confirming, and committing need different boundaries than covenanting. The way to come up with boundaries is to have honest dialogue. It's not to accidentally fall into them. The clearer, the more deliberately chosen your boundaries can be, the easier it will be to keep them. The way to do this, I think, is to move strictly from sexual urges and sexual intimacy in your relationship into a larger picture of holistic intimacy. You may be asking, what do I do with all the sex drive that's in me while I'm dating or while I'm single? And I think the Christian answer is that love is a bigger thing than eros. Love includes phileo, friendship. It includes storge, affection. It includes agape, this willful commitment. And the more you can lean in to all of these other expressions of intimacy, 
the more satisfied your soul will be. Last one is to date. If you date, date in community. Uh, Plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. Just a few notes on this. I'm not asking you to date a lot of people, not a community of people at the same time. I'm asking you to date like with an awareness of your family. Instead of just pulling away from family for the purpose of dating, maybe invite family in to different parts of it. And invite your church in. Tim Keller says this in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. To walk this path, single people need a Christian community. With other singles, singles who aren't too hungry to be married or too fearful of it, they should be in community with singles who don't use the world's standards of physical beauty and wealth as a basis for making partner choices. They need community with families. They need community with families who, who don't make family an idol or don't make singles feel superfluous. Another mark of this community should be free and open discussion about how the Bible's perspective on sex plays out in relationships. The more often singles and married Christians reflect on the Christian teaching about this, the more support singles will feel for abiding by it. He says churches have to talk about sex more. Most of all, singles who want romantic involvement without mandatory sexual intercourse will need a sufficiently large community of single people who are all pursuing that same goal. Single people have to support one another in the cause of celibacy until you're married, he says. Last, last piece of this is if you're considering marriage. Can I just offer three paradoxes? And I'll try to move quickly here. The first paradox, if you're thinking about marriage, is to know this. You'll never marry the right person, but don't marry the wrong person. You'll never marry the right person, but don't marry the wrong person. Many spouses quickly come to realize after you're married, I didn't marry the right person. Some think, I have to get out of this. I didn't marry the right person. Some think, well, I just met the right person, and I happen to be married to this person. But the truth is, you always marry the wrong person. Howard was, we always marry the wrong person. Tim Keller, you never marry the right person. And so does your spouse. You are not the right person. You and they are sinful. You're broken. Every marriage has a discovery of sinfulness. And in marriage, you will be sinned against like no other relationship you will ever have. This is part of marriage. You, there's no Mr. Right or Mrs. Right. If you're going to get married, it will be to a sinner. There's no other options here. You will see that person at their worst. You will be mistreated. You will be disrespected. You will be ignored. None of those are excusable, but they are forgivable. This is marriage. On the other hand, marrying the wrong person can be devastating. Sometimes you can marry the utterly wrong person. And I've seen a loneliness in marriage, not my own, but I've seen loneliness in marriage that surpasses the loneliness of singleness. Not everyone should marry, and you should not marry just anyone. Jesus' disciples are right. If this is the situation, it is better not to marry. As Paul wrote, it is good to remain single. Second, romance doesn't last, but true love is forever. Romance doesn't last. Romantic love has no elasticity to it. Once you discover that you didn't marry Mr. Right, romantic love crashes. In 
his book, The Happiness Hypothesis, Jonathan Haidt says, as I see it, the modern myth of true love involves these beliefs. One, true love is passionate love that never fades. Two, if you are in true love, you should marry that person. Three, if love ends, you should leave that person because it was not true love. And four, if you can find the right person, you will have true love forever. You might not believe this myth yourself, particularly if you're older than 30, but many young people in Western nations are raised on it and it acts as an ideal that they unconsciously carry with them even if they scoff at it. Jonathan Hyde is not a Christian. He's a secular stoic, and he says, if true love is defined as eternal passion, it is biologically impossible. True love, the feeling of romance, is based on dopamine. Your brain always regulates dopamine, and you need more. So eventually, every romantic relationship will crash, every one. True love doesn't last if that's how you define true love. Instead, what he says is that true love is companionate, not passionate. Companionate is the affection we feel over time. This is attachment. It's durable relationships. He says true love exists, I believe, but it is not, cannot be, passion that lasts forever. True love, the love that undergirds strong marriages, is simply strong companionate love with some added passion between two people who are firmly committed to each other. That is a secular stoic view of marriage that totally resonates with our sensibilities. But Jesus says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. C.S. Lewis, headship then is most fully embodied, not in the husband we should all wish to be, but in him whose marriage is most like a crucifixion. If you want true love, find a man or a woman empowered by the love of God in Christ. Third, last, last one, then I'll close. Marriage won't complete you until it does. See, the romantic view of sexual love is opposite the traditional view. And it says you don't need marriage, you don't need children to complete, you need sexual fulfillment. Think of Jerry Maguire as Tom Cruise looks into her eyes and says, you complete me. <laughs> I can't live if living was without you. It's Mark Antony and Cleopatra, it's Romeo, it's Juliet. But there are two fundamental flaws with this romantic view. First, you don't need marriage to complete you. You are a whole person. You are not incomplete. You are loved, you are desired, you are seen. Second, marriage will expose you, not complete you. Marriage doesn't solve emptiness, it exposes it, Gary Thomas says. If someone can't live without you, he or she will never be happy living with you either. John Tyson says, marriage is trying to figure out problems together you didn't even know you had alone. And so when we bring God-sized needs to human beings, they cannot possibly succeed. This is true of overgrown sexual desire. In the case of habitual pornography use, it creates unrealistic expectations for sex, for sexual fulfillment, for sexual frequency. This puts enormous unhuman pressure on a spouse. Sex can be frustrating years into marriage, even independent of this. And if you're single now, now is the time to tackle this. Marriage won't do it. Marriage can refine you, that's true, but singleness can refine you too. There's so many pathways for God to use singleness and his kingdom for discipleship. On the other hand, one day marriage will complete you. One day, each of us will be completed by a cosmic marriage. 
we're all looking for the right person. We're looking for the soulmate. And I've said, you won't find it. We're looking for true love. We're looking for forever. And I've said, you won't find it. We're looking for a marriage to give all of this to us, but there is only one marriage that can. Uh, Bethany Jenkins, I was listening to her lecture at a conference on singleness. She said she was engaged, and six weeks before the wedding, they broke it off. And the program was set, and she was going to walk down the aisle to come thou fount of every blessing. Six weeks later, her family all comes into town. They already had their tickets. And instead of doing a wedding and then flying to the Caribbean for a honeymoon, they went to church instead. And that Sunday morning at church, they sang, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And she said, in this moment, she had this voice that was speaking to her. I remember God reminding me that though I was single by sight, I was betrothed by faith. I'm convinced that all of the marriages in Scripture point to the true marriage that we all long for. Even if you don't want to be married now, there is a longing in us to have deep intimacy and connection and true love, to have a soulmate. Marriage is supposed to be the signpost to this, not the replacement for it. Marriage is a profound mystery, Paul says, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. Unfortunately, all of the marriages of Scripture leave us wanting more. Adam and Eve, not a great start. Abraham and Sarah, throw in Hagar. Jacob and Leah and Rachel, it's not great. There is no marriage in Scripture that points to the reality that God has for us. And so what the prophets say is that God had to choose his own bride, and he had to step into the story, and he had to, he had to marry. I will betroth you to me forever. I'm not your master. I want to be your husband. As a groom rejoices over, her, over his bride, Isaiah says, so will your God rejoice over you. But when God married his people, they kept cheating on him over and over again. There's adultery and political alliances. And at the end of the Old Testament, God ends up divorced. Jeremiah 3, I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. We leave the Old Testament with an ideal picture of what covenant marriage is supposed to be like, and we haven't seen one yet. And then into that story steps Jesus, who leaves his father, and he leaves his country, and he goes looking for his bride. And he's introduced in Matthew 9 as the bridegroom, and he's throwing a wedding feast in Matthew chapter 22. And then he finds this woman, his people Israel, and he finds her unfaithful. He describes her in Matthew 12 as an adulterous generation. And so, in order to win her back, to buy her out of her prostitution and her adultery and her slavery, he goes to the cross to set her free. He sends her gifts and adornments, and he, he tells her to get ready for the wedding. It's still, it's still on. He's preparing her as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And the wedding of the lamb has come. And the bride has made herself ready. All of history is pointing to this marriage. It's moving towards a wedding. It's the climax is the word we use. It's the consummation. And one day you will forever enjoy covenant communion with him. Where you were chosen and you were wanted, you were beloved. You were the spotless bride where you were adorned, where you experienced intimacy and union. All of our longings point to him. And when we see his face at that wedding and the celebration that follows, only then will our souls be truly satisfied, finding their true mate. So if you're single and aimless, it can be frustrating with angst and discontentment. But if you're single with vision, you can have blessing. 
identity, purpose, consequence, and calling. Would you stand? I want to bless you and pray for you. God, we long to be with you and with Christ in that wedding and in that marriage. And in this in-between time, would you protect our marriages from idolatry? Would you protect us from complacency? Would you protect our singleness from a vision of just self-fulfillment and instead fill us with a vision for what you want to do with the kingdom? But Lord, we want to be with you, so we say, come quickly. The bride says, come. In Christ's name, amen.